0: Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this presentation on thyroid disorders and latest advances in help and healing. I'm Dr. Paul Anderson from Seattle, Washington. Today I'd like to talk about the basis of many thyroid disorders and how we can use uh, low-dose naltrexone and other collaborative therapies in healing them. So thyroid disorders across the spectrum are really one of the most common hormonal conditions in, in people. Anybody treating patients will see the majority of their patients either having been screened for or currently under treatment for or under consideration of treatment for thyroid disorders. What we want to do in this presentation really is uh, look at first the, the spectrum of thyroid disorders and then focus in on the more immunologically challenging cases and how immunologic therapy, such as the use of low-dose naltrexone can be a benefit. So this is our overview. We want to look at common conditions, look at the immunologic effects, uh, and then also the the uh, clinical practice uh, subtleties that will go along with the treatment of the immunologically sensitive thyroid disorders. And these are our learning objectives. Just a quick background about me. I'm Dr. Paul Anderson, CEO and Medical Director of the Anderson Medical Group. Chief Medical Advisor at Santa Vita Hospital in Rosarito, Mexico have been involved in the National Institute of Health and other nationally funded and internationally funded research, mostly clustered around advanced cancer care and integrative oncology, research professor at Bastyr University, and now, due to my uh, clinic caseload, uh, an adjunct research professor. And I was the first site director for U.S. site number one for the Canadian and U.S. Integrative Oncology Study, or QCOS. As far as clinical experience and background, when I refer to the patients that we see and are our, uh, our either research or anecdotal reports of patients, et cetera, they're the two primary clinical uh, avenues that I work through. The research is done normally through university-based centers, but these are the two centers that I uh, generally am most involved in patient care at, Advanced Medical Therapies in Seattle, Washington, and then uh, San Aviv Hospital in Rosarito, Mexico, where I'm a medical advisor. And I also have an online CE service as well. But the two clinical facilities focus on two primary groups of patients. One is advanced oncology patients, but the other are patients with advanced chronic illness or complicated chronic illness. And that's really the setting in which the majority of my experience with immunologic thyroid disorders and complicated and comorbid thyroid disorders has come from over the last few decades working with patients. Probably a great place to start, and I know that this is largely a review for most of us, but just quickly to move into thyroid uh, physiology and biology and and then pathophysiology, we all had to learn about the uh, histology of the thyroid glands and the follicles and the colloid and, and their uh, their operation in the synthesis of thyroid hormone. And we, we know that we have the, the stimulating effect of TSH on all of the synthetic areas and we know that we synthesize the thyroid hormone on thyroglobulin, sort of the base molecule in both the colloid and the follicles. And then essentially what we're doing of course is adding uh, tyrosine uh, and iodine together and we're doing that usually four times to make the T4 molecule. The other thing that often uh, comes into thyroid metabolism of course is iodine uh, deiodination and recirculation in the body <clears throat> and so If the thyroid levels are are appropriate and we have the thyroid production, we get down to the tissue level and the thyroid is uh, used. We deiodinate the thyroid. The iodine is either recycled back to the thyroid or urinated out based on uh, iodine levels in the blood and a few other uh, feedback mechanisms. The other thing that we're all intimately aware of but bears repeating is the cellular activity of activating thyroid hormone and this is normally considered to be the conversion of T4 to T3. Now in the representation that's drawn here you've got a couple of things on the outside of the cell on the left side you have uh, T4 and T3 individually presenting themselves to the cell. Now T4 is largely what is made when we produce it from the thyroid and uh, and is exported as T4. A little bit of T3 is made there. The liver can peripherally convert T4 to T3, and we export T3. But what's not made peripherally through the liver or, or the thyroid proper is, has to be converted in, in the individual tissues. And that's, of course, marked in, uh, in there right straight in the middle through 5' prime diiodinase, which is a selenium-dependent enzyme uh, that takes one of the iodines off and turns it into T3. And then, of course, T3, triiodothyronine, is able to activate both the mitochondrial receptors and the, the nuclear receptors in the DNA, And as we know, the T3 operates the mitochondria in the basal metabolic rate. And then the reason for the nuclear receptor activity is so that the T3 can go and uh, help with nuclear activity, protein formation, and cytokinesis. Now, there's one other thing uh, that is receptor-based that you see at the very top, and that is that there's a T3, a discrete T3 receptor on most cells on the outside. So one of the reasons to have or need T3 and why it's so important is if the thyroid's not making very much T3 or the liver is not making a whole lot of converted T3, then the T3 external receptor there on the top of the cell is slowed down. If it gets slowed down, both glucose and amino acid uptake are also slowed down. This is important because if you think about it, this is feeding what T3 does inside the cell. The glucose goes right to the mitochondria And then the amino acids go to the nucleus and are involved in protein synthesis and cytokinesis. So one of the problems that occurs in thyroid syndromes and resistance, et cetera, is if there's not enough T3, if there's a lot of blocking agents to the T3 receptor, the cell essentially is trying to speed up with no fuel. And that creates a a lot of stress on the cells, and that creates a lot of our more unusual thyroid disorders that we see. So just very briefly, what could interfere with that external T3 receptor? Well, reverse T3 is one of the agents, and we'll talk a lot about that. But also, it turns out, many medications, including opiates, are downregulating of the T3 receptor. So at least theoretically, based on the opiate uh, antagonism of the exogenous T3 receptor, Uh, Something like naltrexone has a potential to actually reactivate the exogenous T3 receptor. So we all have learned about the common thyroid dysfunctions, the autoimmune thyroiditis, myxedema without autoimmunity, thyroid resistance syndrome, which is usually either a conversion problem, a T3, uh, reverse T3 elevation, or both and of course, Graves' disease, and then system cancers, we're really gonna focus on the more immunologically based uh, thyroid problems that are listed here. Especially in our patients that have complex problems or seem to have thyroid issues, but don't really have a clear screening test, such as the TSH is maybe looking okay, or a little high normal, and the, the free T4 is looking okay we will generally back up and run the free T3, free T4, and reverse T3 if those haven't been run. And we will also, based on their symptoms, run their antibodies. Now, normally, uh, we don't run TSI unless we're seeing graves-like symptoms, but TPO and NITG antibodies are run uh, universally on our patients that have uh, what look, appear to be borderline uh, thyroid problems or... We may run all of these in people who are treated currently for thyroid, but are having atypical responses, which is very common in the chronically ill. And this, of course, is just a quick rundown on the main players, and we all know what they do. The one I will say that, um, because I've been working with patients with with thyroid problems for probably the better part of 25 years now... um, the reverse T3 measurement has been available for a very long time. I will say that initially, a number of years ago, I started to use it, and I actually abandoned the use of reverse T3 because, frankly, the laboratory technology just wasn't very good. And it was one of those things where, you you know, it's it's the best theoretical idea, but the laboratory assessment hadn't really, it wasn't a very sensitive test back in those days. And about uh, 10, 11 years ago, the technology had improved and we started using it again. And and of course, nothing I'm talking about here is for your simple cases, but in the chronic case or the case that's borderline or the case that makes no sense or the case that uh, comes from the endocrinologist and is getting increasing doses of uh, T4 medication and diminishing return... <clears throat> I have found sometimes the most high payoff in adding reverse T3. It's sort of like adding free T3 to your free T4 to see if there's conversion issues. Reverse T3 is going to help in seeing if you're getting uh, inflammatory-mediated conversion of T3 to reverse T3, which becomes an anti-hormone, essentially. And then, of course, the thyroid antibodies. And as I said, we um, screen these and. Uh, of course, anybody with symptoms. And then in our chronically ill patients who are on thyroid or whose labs are equivocal and they haven't had antibodies checked, we we always do that as part of our panel. And uh, we will do, as I said, symptom-based, either the uh, TPO and the NITG or the appropriate for hyperthyroid, if that's what we're looking at. Sometimes I will use a chart like this just to illustrate to a patient, number one, how the thyroid is supposed to work. It's the same chart from earlier looking at the the follicular and the colloid areas of thyroid synthesis and show them that, you know, you have these antibodies that are elevated and they're essentially interfering with the function of either the peroxidase system or the thyroglobulin system or both, which is very common in sicker people with hypothyroidism. Uh, Or if they have uh, a a grave situation, usually the TSI is actually attacking uh, the TSH system and ramping it up. So sometimes it's helpful for the patient to understand why in the world am I having all these symptoms? What's going wrong? And uh, why could it be that my TSH is still not elevated, but I have all these hypothyroid symptoms? Well, one of the common things we see in autoimmune Thyroiditis is, is a, a prodrome that can last quite long, where the TSH will maybe rise very slowly, but still be "quote unquote" normal, but their actual metabolic activity goes down, and it's because there's a slow burn of uh, decrease in uh, ability to produce uh, T4 and T3. This is a common uh, question that I I receive from patients and other practitioners. Um, And I think this is really where the the more broad immunologic uh, therapy for thyroid problems would come into play, and that is you can't, quote-unquote, do anything for the cause of autoimmune thyroid disorders or thyroid resistance problems, you know, so why why even try and treat it? The preamble here is that many patients will come in and they will say, um, can... You help me get off of my thyroid. I have Hashimoto's or I have thyroid resistance or something. And the answer I will normally give is maybe. That's about as definite as you can be. But I want to just take a couple of minutes and talk about um, what we have found over the years to be uh, the most well-rounded way, if there is a possibility of lowering the dose of thyroid or even getting somebody off, getting their antibodies down, the best ways to go about doing that. And so that's why I want to focus really on the, the immunologic and resistance-type thyroid problems as opposed to the, the non-immunologic cases. So in my own personal experience these last couple of decades in in a lot of uh, patient clinical trial and error, et cetera. In some Graves cases, some Hashimoto's and thyroid resistance cases, you can do something. Now, what you can do depends a lot um, on how long the patient has had the immunologic assault, uh, how badly they are affected physiologically by the either excess or deficiency of the thyroid hormone, and, and a number of other comorbid factors. So the first thing And and from the patient's point of view, of course, patients want what? They want this to work immediately with the least amount of uh, trouble on their part, of course. And that's something that, uh, in my experience, takes a lot of uh, priming and preparation with the patient, where you need to speak to them uh, and you need to let them know number one, if we can do something, it might be modification of your thyroid disease, meaning it, it's easier to treat, lower doses, et cetera. Or maybe we might be able to get you off medicine or on a very low dose, et cetera. But it's not going to be fast, no matter what we do, because there's usually many reasons that you're immunologically imbalanced in a way that makes you have these thyroid problems. So the first thing is making sure the patient understands that this is not a extremely <clears throat> quick treatment. But also, if you are invested in it and you can work on it over time, it is possible to have some movement. The other thing that I will generally tell a patient just so that they are um, uh, prepped and ready and, and they have the right idea in mind is, if you come in with a very early onset Graves' case and you're, of course, on medication to take care of the cardiac and the metabolic excesses, et cetera, so we're palliatively treating that. But if it's in the first year or so of a Graves case, there's often many things you can look at that might reduce or, or even rewind the case. Kind of the same with a Hashimoto's case. If they're you know, they in the first few years of having it discovered and all of that, a little easier to unwind that case than somebody who's been treated for 20, 30 years. To make it as succinct as possible. None of this works in my estimation without a whole system approach or a holistic approach, if you will. And that really gets back to calming inflammatory cytokines, which can involve everything. That involves exercise, diet, supplementation, all kinds of things. Addressing collateral endocrine dysfunction, very, very important. The endocrine system has so much crosstalk that if you have other endocrine stressors such as poorly controlled blood sugar, probably the number one problem, uh, Adrenal imbalances, uh, so well certainly if you had Addisons or Cushings, that's a whole other uh, problem there. but if you have uh, adrenal imbalances such as stress from blood sugar control, creating a kind of a, a sine wave effect with their cortisol or other problems that's uh, very, very important. If you have an out-of-control stress response system, that's important. Uh, so during the process, all of these things have to be considered and looked at. And one of the tools that I employ in in all three of these areas. So in a in a Graves-type situation, Hashimoto's, or in a thyroid resistance, is Lodos and and I do that because I think that there's theoretically reasons why it would be helpful, and I've seen cases that could not move forward until we added LDN in, and then we were able to see their uh, their antibodies drop. We were able to see their inflammatory markers drop, et cetera. And so the question i always get is, do you have any good research to back you up on this? Very, very fair question. Well, the answer to do you have a lot of research on it is no, there's not. Uh, there's not a great deal of direct naltrexone at low dose versus thyroid disorder, uh, especially, you know, single agent, et cetera. But I found this interesting because they just retrospectively looked at people on high-dose naltrexone. Uh, and this, so this was a human study, um, and it was for people who were opioid addicts who were on naltrexone treatment. So this is definitely not low dose, but they did just retrospectively look at um, things such as total T3, BMI levels, duration uh, of use of drug, reverse T3, IL-6, and inflammatory cytokine. Um, And although it was just a few subjects, their conclusion was, well, we can't come up with anything statistically significant here uh, with this low number of patients. <clears throat> but we did see that the duration of naltrexone therapy appeared to be positively correlated with total T3 and T3 to T4 conversion. And the important thing about this is number one, no, you couldn't take this to the, uh, to the research bank and say this is for sure proof that, uh, um, you know, this is a good idea to use naltrexone and thyroid problems. But it's at least some human, human evidence that seems to, in the case where I have been using uh, empirically low-dose naltrexone in these cases, seems to match my experience. So it's something. This next slide, of course... Um, has nothing to do with the thyroid. And so <laughs> I put that in at the bottom. This is a, a fairly recent one on using LDN in uh, as an anti-inflammatory for chronic pain. And this goes into glial cell biology, it's a very interesting paper, if you uh, want to take a look at it. Um, and uh, it, And so it goes through that. But I think that the important thing here, because we don't have a lot of direct research into thyroid uh, pathology and naltrexone and where they'll cross over, et cetera. But we have a growing amount of anecdotal evidence from physicians who use it in autoimmune thyroiditis that they get clinical results. You need to start looking at, is there anything in the data that would say this is why we see this going on? Well, one of the things that's brought up in this paper is that, again, If one of the more important targets that we're looking at in the comorbidities around thyroiditis that is immunologically or resistant-based is uh, inflammatory cytokines, which is true, then if naltrexone can be shown in one part of the body to manipulate inflammatory cytokines in a positive manner, probably in other parts of the body would as well, so to me this is inferential evidence it's not direct evidence that at least we're we're looking in the right direction and it may be one of the explanations for why clinically or empirically we see benefit of LDM in the autoimmune and resistive thyroid patient and then finally uh, obviously uh, another one that has nothing to do with uh, the thyroid but has a lot to do with inflammatory cytokines and um, this one was uh, uh, was presented um, in the, I think two thousand and eight um, but it looks at of course, uh, inflammatory bowel disease and uh, looks at manipulation of cytokines, the potential for that with low dose naltrexone. again it's it's inferential, uh, but the same inflammatory milieu of cytokines that aggravates uh, neurological pain and aggravates inflammatory bowel problems is the same cytokines that create more reverse t3 and create uh, the triggering of autoantibodies etc generally speaking and then this one uh, was part of a presentation just uh, in 2016 uh, around um, again nothing to do with uh, uh, thyroid, but but everything to do with uh, cytokine manipulation. It's an animal study, uh, but it's looking at, um, at rats who were estrogen de- deficient and had chronic alcohol intake. Um, and again, not, not laterally related to the thyroid, but if you read all of these more in detail, what you see is a uh, collaboration of information that I think as I say, backs up at least theoretically one potential mechanism by which the use of naltrexone in thyroid disorders could be beneficial. Probably involved globally in cytokine manipulation, probably involved globally in those cytokines calming down and triggering less things such as reverse T3 elevation and potentially lowering the amount of autoantibodies that are available as well. So those are just some, uh, again, inferential data that, uh, that at least point to mechanisms by which I think that we can explain what we see anecdotally in our practice. So to make some grand conclusions in a very short amount of time, this, of course, is a much deeper uh, amount of you know data from clinic, years of clinical practice, but these are the summary uh, ideas that, that I have seen with uh, um, my thyroid patients. So if you have autoimmune and or resistance, so thyroid resistance with increased reverse T3 or a uh, imbalance in the T4, T3 levels. That can go with or without an autoimmune component. But the thing that they have in common is that both of them are at least greatly aggravated by, number one, other endocrine problems, number two, cytokine imbalances and inflammatory triggers that go along. So in those cases, if you can... Use multiple points of therapy. You can often first stabilize the disease. So, if you have one of those patients where uh, they're they're on an appropriate dose of thyroid and it's it's working and not working, or you're going higher and higher getting diminishing return, those kind of cases just getting stabilized can be the first uh, target. And then the next target really is to look at: can we get the uh, reverse T3 to go down? Can we get the antibodies to go down? and start to get them in that direction. often when that happens, you actually can lower the doses of their thyroid mm-hmm. support and prescription. And then later in cases where maybe there's not as much comorbidity and you've got other uh, other areas <clears throat> cleaned up and working, uh, such as are mentioned in the second bullet point, the other hormonal things, like I said, the uh, blood sugar control issues are very, very huge. Other auto-inflammatory problems, Uh, endocrine imbalances such as high estrogen, low progesterone, low testosterone, et cetera. Get those things taken care of, look for uh, removal of environmental toxins and all that. The addition of the LDN really can cover a lot of the cytokine-based triggers. And so while it doesn't work as a single therapy, I've seen it, as I mentioned earlier, really open up autoimmune thyroiditis and resistive thyroid cases we were really stuck on in this single edition of LDN uh, essentially helps the patient break through a level of uh, impediment to, uh, to healing. So in most people um, in autoimmunity, I will dose them in one of the, one of the two uh, dose strategies that we have here uh, in people who are very Reactive and have very um, uh, you know sensitive constitutions, and they you know they come in and they've had all sorts of trouble, and they're very, very sensitive to every medication they've ever been given. I go a little slower. So I'll give them a milligram of LDN for one month. Then in the second month, based on how they did in the first month, I'll go between one and a half and two and a half. And again, do that for a month. And then on the third month, usually we're working up to the 4.5 milligram terminal dose. In people that I feel are a little more stable, the the normal strategy, I call it alternate strategy, but the normal strategy that most of us have used is 1.5 milligrams for two weeks, then 3 milligrams for two weeks, and then 4.5. And if, you know, in a sensitive person, they may push it out to one uh, one-month steps, but generally a little faster ramping up. I do tend to see just this is an empiric observation over the years that uh, as opposed to, say, my cancer patients who generally can ramp up LDN quite quickly, some of the autoimmune patients, you have to go a bit slower. And the other mitigating uh, effect is I normally have patients dose the LDN in the evening, uh, and I tell them, you know, initially you may get some vivid dreams, you may have some other things, but if they come back after a week or two and they say, I'm having, you know, a lot of nightmares, or it's disrupting my sleep, et cetera. I'll have them move their dose to the morning. If if the sleep problems, et cetera, are still going on with morning dosing, I'll I'll just back off on the dose as well. Now, one caution, one caution is really uh, the use of LDN concurrently with opiate medications, as we all know, because they're inimical pharmacologically. Now, it is low dose. Uh, so technically, shouldn't be as much blockade effect as high dose would have, but in <clears throat> my years of working with patients with opiates and and uh notifying them of the potential interaction and having them want to try it well in anyway, ten to twenty percent you just you just can't use them together if they've tried as they have breakthrough pain, and eighty to ninety percent actually, you can find a dose that they won't most important thing is really two factors. One is you have to disclose it. Uh, you have to consent the patient that there's possibility of breakthrough pain. And uh, and if you're giving them uh, a uh, slow ramped up dose, they must follow it explicitly and let you know if they're getting breakthrough pain. That said, if they consent after all of that uh, notification that you've given them, then what we find has worked the best is uh, we start very low, and we make the steps very slow. So we'll we'll have four weeks at a dose. Now, this is uh, not something that's published anywhere. This is just clinic uh, clinically applicable uh, dose strategies that I have learned over time. If somebody is just on periodic uh, opiates, I will often. Uh, start them as on the previous slide just with a milligram for a month and see how they do. And let's say they're using their opiates twice a month or three times or four times a month. We'll meet again before we change the dose and say, well, when you use the opiates did you have the same effect, et cetera. If the patient is on some sort of long-term opioid therapy and uh, we discuss this a lot more in the setting of cancer, but Sometimes in your autoimmune patients, they may be on longer-term opioid therapy. I may start at that half milligram. I may actually cut the previous slide's dosing schedule in half into a half milligram for a month and see about breakthrough pain and just ramp up very slowly. One thing I will say, the the 80 to 90% who don't have breakthrough pain, sometimes they can't ramp up to the full 4.5 milligrams they may level out at one or two or even three milligrams. And if they go above that, they have breakthrough pain. So there's actually a threshold you can find. As long as you have a competent patient who understands the deal and knows what breakthrough pain is and, and uh, knows that the reason you're going very slow is that you're looking for that, um, my experience has been it's it's very safe to do. But if uh, if they don't want to consent to the potential for breakthrough pain, Uh, we just move on and and do not use LBM as a therapy with opiates. Again, I'm Dr. Paul Anderson from Seattle, Washington. It's been my pleasure talking to you today about the use of low-dose naltrexone immunotherapy in thyroid conditions. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website, www.ldnresearchtrust.org